Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Uh, hang on, my mic is all tangled. There it is. Um, we are uh, begin- continuing our series with Delight, Display, Declare. And as you have heard, you heard Jared say last week, there will be a little bit of interaction. There will definitely be some interaction, especially toward the end of our time this morning. So one thing you need to know, I am partially deaf. If you are sitting far enough away that you think I won't be able to hear you, which I'll just tell you is like the first seven or eight rows, move forward silently while I'm praying, okay? We all on board with that? I will now pray and then you can do that without any shame uh, and, uh, and then we'll get started. Father, we love you and we thank you that we get to gather and just consider the glories of your word this morning. We pray, God, that uh, you would bless this time, that you would sharpen our minds according to your word. You would help us to delight in your precepts and your commands and to know that you, God, are good. You are righteous in all that you do and all that you say. Uh, And we just want to know you. And we pray, Father, for the fruit of this time to be a deeper delight, uh, a greater savoring of our God as we study his word. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, So as Jared shared last week, this semester we are giving away some free books. And so I have some free books to give away to you. Here's how it's going to work when I'm doing this. Jared just was a free-for-all. It was madness. Um, I will explain the book, and then you are allowed to raise your hand. Okay? Does that make sense? If you would like to read it. Uh, And we're changing our language a little bit. I think Jared said last week, if you take it, you are promising on pain of death, you will read it uh, and talk about it with a staff member uh, or an elder. Uh, If you take it, you are promising before the Lord... That's a big deal. It's basically on pain of death. You will read it, but we encourage you to meet with a staff member or elder. We don't want you to feel like you have to have this burden of, you know, awkwardly talking with Carl for an hour about a book you read. We don't want you to feel that way. Carl, we love you. It's not awkward to talk with Carl. Um, Anyway, so book number one. This book, remember you raise your hands when I'm done, okay? This book, very short. Josh Wilson, put your hand down. Thank you. Um, This book is called, How Can I Get More Out of My Bible Reading? As you can see, it is about that thick. It is extremely short. It is very, very simple. What I love about it is this is a great kind of complementary piece to what I'm going to be teaching. So it's not going to really repeat what I'm teaching. Today we're talking about how to study the Bible, but it will, I think, complement. It'll say a lot of things I don't have the time to say. Uh, So if you're interested in how can I get more out of my Bible reading, raise your hand. Evan Feinfrock. There you go. You're promising to read that. Okay. The Lord will ask you on the last day if you read it. Uh, he'll, yeah, well, that's true. Uh, next book, this book we gave away last week. So if you missed it, I think Sarah Wilson stole it from everyone. Um, so not stole it, claimed it. Uh, if you missed it and you are interested in getting Habits of Grace by David Mathis, uh, this is a book about the normal everyday habits to strengthen your walk with God, to grow in your knowledge of who he is and your delight in him. So it certainly fits in uh, this week's teaching. Um, and was there something else I want to say about it? No, that's great. Um, so if you're, okay, Judith Reed, yeah. I, you may have had your hand up early, but I will, I will allow it because you're Judith and I mean... You've been here for 30 years longer than anyone else, so you can do what you want. Thank you. All right. 
Uh, final book is called What is the Mission of the Church? Subtitle, Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission. I love this book. I, so this book might feel a little out of left field. We're talking about how to study the Bible. What I love about this book is it's, it, it helps, uh, it, it, it gives you, uh, how do I put this? Uh, I think I wrote down a note. Maybe not. No, I didn't. Um, it gives you an example of how to handle the scriptures. So he's talking about the Great Commission. He's talking about issues that are controversial, like social justice. And their handling of the Bible is instructive in itself in saying that is how you should handle the scriptures in, uh, in the way that they're meant to be handled. So who is interested in what is the mission of the church by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert? Rob Broomham. There you go, Rob. You're promising before the Lord you're going to read this book. Thank you. All right, that is a really, really good book. Um, okay, today we are launching basically like into our new semester. Last week was a review, not a review, uh, overview, that's the word, thank you. Uh, an overview of what's coming this semester. Uh, and uh, today we are beginning our first uh, lesson and we are talking about how to study the Bible. One of the three things we're talking about this semester are how to delight in God, how to display his love to one another, and how to declare his gospel to the world. And today is all about how to delight in God specifically through studying the Bible. So before we answer the question how to study the Bible, I want to ask I think a more fundamental question. Why study the Bible? Why study the Bible? So there are a lot of answers we could give to that question. Why study the Bible? Well, there's the fact that the Bible is the most influential and best-selling book of all time. You should probably read it. I'm in a book club. This is embarrassing. I'm in a book club with my mom and my brothers. It's nothing weird. Um, and we read classic books that we haven't read that we want to read. You know, oh, it's a bestseller. Let's check it out. You know what I mean? The Bible's the biggest bestseller. Of course, why don't you be interested in reading it? That's a good reason. Another reason we could give to why study the Bible, it's the fact that it is one of the oldest books available. It gives us a, a, an ins, insight and a witness into a history we wouldn't have access to otherwise. That's kind of a big deal. There's the fact that the English Bible you hold in your hands got there from martyrs who laid down their lives to ensure that you would have a Bible today. And so just throwing it aside, ignoring it, kind of doesn't acknowledge their sacrifice, you could say. Those are good reasons to study the Bible, and I hope they encourage you to study the Bible, but none of those reasons is enough to make you center your entire life around this book. None of those reasons is sufficient to actually make this book something you read every single day, something you hunger for more than food, something you treasure more than riches, something that is sweeter than any fare you could ever enjoy, the highest delight of your heart centered around this book. None of those reasons that I've given you so far could convince you to do that. But there is a reason that can, and that's where we need to start. Look at Psalm chapter 19. Not Psalm chapter 19, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings 
of the honeycomb. Now, Psalm 19, has the, this is the second half of that psalm. The first half is all about creation. So uh, the psalmist is just looking at the world and saying, man, God is so glorious. Creation is just singing his praises. And then it's like there's this turn in verse 7 where I started reading where the psalmist is like, but man, I've got something so much better, something infinitely greater than the glory of God we see in creation. And it is the glory of God as we have in his word. Look at the adjectives that he uses here. It's, it's perfect. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. It's enduring. It's precious. It's, it's, it's sweet. That is the word of God. Another psalm very famously reflects on this, Psalm 119. I've, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible, um, so I won't read the whole thing for you, but just one verse, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Very famous psalm. And what is Psalm 119 all about? It is all about the glories of the Bible. So uh, if, you, if you have an English Bible you, and you read through Psalm 19, you'll see there's these Hebrew uh, letters that are, that are put in, in English, uh, kind of anglicized. Uh, so Aleph is spelled out. It doesn't say, show it in Hebrew. But uh, he, Psalm 119 is really cool poetry because each heading, each Hebrew letter is the beginning of that entire section of the psalm. So uh, the first, uh, what is it? The first six or seven verses, I think, are all starting with the equivalent of the Hebrew letter A. And then the next seven or eight verses are all starting with the equivalent of the Hebrew letter B. And so it's like, it's like the psalmist is just saying, give me a letter and I'll talk about how awesome the Bible is. It's like if you were to say to me, like, uh, how, tell me about your wife. And I'm like, man, A, she's awesome. She's astonishing. She, she's amazing. B, she's beautiful. She bakes great desserts, right? You know, it's like, give me a letter and I'll talk about how awesome she is. That's what Psalm 119 is doing with the entire Bible. It's like the A to Z of how amazing the Bible is. It is about the inexhaustibility of the glory of God's word. And that is a, an extremely intense thing to say about a book. In fact, it sounds borderline idolatrous. Unless you see, or sorry, Second uh, Timothy verse three, which very clearly says, "All Scripture is breathed out by God." The Bible is the very breath of the God of the universe. It is in a unique and glorious way a witness to who he is. It is his communication to his people. So before we ask, how can we study the Bible? We need to ask, how can we not? I mean, God, the immortal God, the eternal king of the universe who fashioned the stars in the sky, who knit you together, who has purchased you by the blood of his son and has secured your eternity forever, has spoken and you hold it in your hands. How can we not study God's word? How can we not make it the center of our entire lives? If you want to delight in God, there is no greater place to start than with what God himself has spoken. That's why we should study the Bible. And then the next question, the question we'll spend most of our time on is how. How do we study the Bible? And obviously the important part of this is how do we study it well? 
So we don't want to just study it. We don't want to just check it off the list. We want to study it well. And to answer that, we need to know what the Bible is. And there's two things uh, to know about what the Bible is. On the one hand, the Bible is a book. That's important. Second, the Bible is the word of God. It's not just a book. As 2 Timothy 3 says, it is breathed out inspired by the God of the universe. So two things, this dual identity of the scriptures, it is a book and it is the word of God. Let's look at those in turn. So first, the Bible is a book. This is an absurdly important and unimaginably obvious fact. The Bible is a book, but somehow we tend to forget that. So uh, God, uh, he didn't drop an asteroid with a bunch of alien code on it, and that was his communication to his people. He didn't uh, dr- give us some magic tablets and magic glasses, Mormonism, to communicate to us, right? He chose to communicate to us with a book, and the reason that matters is it means the normal kind of mental rules you have for studying the Bible or studying a book apply to the Bible. So you don't normally read a book and count up the words on the page, divide it by some random number, and find words connected to the JFK assassination. Right? I'm assuming that's true. But yes? Okay, I'm getting some nods. That's good. Uh, Hopefully you don't do that. You've never done that with a book, but somehow people still do it with the Bible, and sometimes it's even on the shelves at Mardell. So uh, ignore it when people do that. That's That's not how you use a book. The Bible is a book. Three kind of specific things I want to say about this. The Bible is not just a book, it's an old book. It's an old book. So when you read Homer's Odyssey or you read Shakespeare or the Gilgamesh epic, if you're a total nerd, uh, you find unfamiliar places, unfamiliar settings, unfamiliar concepts when you're reading that and you feel this, this distance and you should feel that with the Bible. So the Bible is an old book. It has parts that feel foreign. I have Psalm 83 here for you. It says, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. Raise your hand if you have any idea who any of those people are. No Midianite historians in the room? No? Okay, that's too bad. Right? You should feel the foreignness in a sense. You should feel, okay, this, this is a world I am less acquainted with than I am with my own. And that's important, and that's easy when it comes to Psalm 83, but somehow there are other parts of the Bible, Jeremiah 29, 11, that we refuse to acknowledge that distance. So Jeremiah 29, 11, right? I know the plans I have for you to make you prosper and all these kind of things, right? You are not an Israelite going into exile. You can't just take that verse and say, it applies exactly to my life in exactly the way that I think it does. Just like Psalm 83, you're like, ooh, that's, that feels a little far away from me. We should feel a certain distance between the world of the Bible and today. Here's the principle here. The Bible was written for you. It was not written to you. The Bible was written for you. It was not written to you. I said this in a few months ago, but that means there's, there's two extremes to avoid. Uh, so on the one side, uh, there's these, the extreme of a one-to-one reading of the Bible. So whatever it said then, that is exactly what it means for me now. So, yeah, I need to know who, obviously you do need to know who these people in Psalm 83 are, but I want to pray that exact prayer because that's exactly applies in every, exact, I mean, this is my world, Psalm 83. No, it's not. So a one-to-one where you just kind of wholesale take it, act like the Bible's addressing your specific life situation now you can run into a lot of problems. The Bible was written for you, but it wasn't written to you. 
But there's the opposite mistake. So we can be, go one-to-one -one and make mistakes. We can also go one-to-none. And we can say the Bible is just stuck in the past. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter. That, you know, these, you know, Zeba and Zalmunna, it, it will never matter. And it's just kind of a historical record. That's not the case. The Bible was written for you. You should care about that. It does apply to your life. Every word of it matters, but we do stand at a different stage of redemptive history than uh, they did in the days of Joshua or Judges or during the exile or during the wilderness wanderings. And so there are similarities, but we also need to know the differences. The Bible is written for us, but not to us. Second, the Bible is a book that has many authors. Now, if you listen to two people speak, you will realize everyone has kind of their own vocabulary, their own style, their own mannerisms, their own way of communicating. We all, we all have, have these it, different focuses that we, you know, our own hobby horses that we will kind of tend to talk about a lot. Uh, so, very brief, quick game we're going to play. This game is called Who's Preaching? Imagine you're here at Parkway on a Sunday and the preacher expresses an idolatrous love for Lionel Messi. Who's preaching? Jared. Jared, good job, guys. Imagine you're here on Sunday and the preacher expresses, or no, just shares a Little Caesar's pizza story. Carl, Carl my man. Uh, imagine you're here on Sunday and the preacher has an I have diabetes joke. Tim, yeah, yeah. And if you're asleep by the end of the sermon, obviously I'm preaching. So, so there you go, now we know. Uh, the same is true of writing. We all have kind of our own natural bent, our own things we like to talk about, and that is natural with the biblical authors as well. Of course, it is all under the inspiration of God. We'll get to that. But God does not override their unique personalities. He works through them. He uses their own style, their own mannerisms, their own vocabulary in order to communicate his truth. So, for example, you might find two biblical authors using the same word in different ways. I have this in your notes. Romans 3.28, Paul writes, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Uh-oh, James 2, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What's going on? Is there a contradiction here? Well, Paul was a Jew, but Paul grew up in Tarsus, which is a place with a lot of Greek influence. And James was a Jew who grew up in backwater Nazareth, probably didn't have an interaction with a non-Jew until he was grown. And they both use the word justified, but they're using it in uh, different ways. So Paul uses the word in a more Greek sense because Paul has more of a Greek background and he uses it to, to, in the sense of, of a legal justification, a, a righteous standing, particularly here, before God. But James uses the same word in a kind of more Jewish sense, which means the, the proof, the, the evidence of, particularly here, of real faith. Your faith is justified. It is proven to be real by your works. So they're using the same word, but they're using them in different ways. And the Bible is allowed to do that because the Bible has many authors. James and Paul are different dudes. If you have more questions about those specific verses, I'd be happy to talk. I could do a lot more kind of unpacking the, the relationship there. But the point is different guys are allowed to use different or the same words to mean different things. The Bible has many authors. And so kind of within every author, you'll find certain bends, certain uh, uh, language that they like to use. 
Third uh, here about the Bible is the book. The Bible has many genres. This is one of the most important things I think uh, you need to know about uh, what the Bible is. It has many genres. So a genre is a fancy word for a type of literature, right? So uh, in like novels, there's the thriller genre. There's, uh, you know, fantasy, sci-fi genres. And every genre has its own rules. It has its own uh, way of communicating. So if you see a billboard by the side of the road with a couple cows on it that says, eat M-O-R chicken, do you get angry at the cows for their inability to spell? No, it's a billboard about Chick-fil-A. Who cares, right? It's that genre, you're allowed to spell that way. If you are reading your own last will and testament and more is spelled M-O-R, would you be upset? Probably. You'd be like, this is not okay. The, the genre here does not allow for this kind of, of, of spelling. We, we need to be precise. The genre is different uh, because billboards and wills have different rules. And so the kind of literature you're reading determines how you interpret it. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah says, He will raise a signal for the nations will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Is the earth square? Isaiah says there's four corners. We're in trouble, guys. This whole, I mean, we're not even talking flat earth, sphere earth. We're talking square or circle. This is, I didn't realize we were still having this question, right? Is the earth a square? No. Why? Because this is Poetry. I put it in kind of a poetic prose, not prose, a poetic, uh, the way it's printed in your Bible to show you that because it's, it's poetry. In poetry, you're allowed to say things like four corners and not be literally talking about four 90 degree angles, right? But if this was an epistle, it might be like, oh, uh, four corners. What is he, is he speaking poetically? I hope so, because he might think the world is a square. The type of literature you're reading depends, or determines how you read it. I have another example of this. I love this example. So, or, sorry, Proverbs 26, verse four. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse five. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Is the Bible contradicting itself? I mean, we're running into some problems. This ain't even like James and Paul. This is like verse four and verse five. And it says the opposite thing. Are you supposed to answer a fool when he says something dumb? Or are you supposed to not answer a fool? Is the Bible contradicting itself? No, because this is a proverb. Proverbs don't deal in black and white decision-making. They deal with wisdom, with the, the gray areas that are hard to figure out. And so... So, so here, the, the verse is just saying life is complex. Sometimes, sometimes someone says something dumb and you need to point it out to them, but sometimes someone says something dumb and you should be quiet so you don't say something dumb too. Life is complex and that's okay. It's not like this contradiction in the Bible because the, the, the genre, proverbial literature, allows for that kind of Speaking, so understanding what you are reading in the Bible is so, so important. A letter, poetry, historical narrative, all of these communicate in their own way. Now, unfortunately, this is just one class on how to study the Bible, so we can't dig deep into all the different genres. I, I thought about trying to do that and realized we'd be here, uh, you know, until noon, won't even get a sermon in today. Uh, 
but I'll just say this, it's pretty intuitive. You know how literature works because if you probably know how to read, I'm assuming. And so it's, it's, it's intuitive, right? So Proverbs are proverbial, pretty intuitive. Historical narrative is historical. Does that make sense, right? So, so know what kind of literature you're reading. Pay attention to the genre. Fourth thing here, the Bible is a book, which means its meaning is shaped by the context. No text exists on an island. There are verses before and after every single part of the scriptures that you read. The the biblical authors did not write a bunch of fortune cookie sayings that stand by themselves and you can just pick and choose one whenever you want and who cares what he said before or after it. The context matters. I'll give you just one example. 1 Corinthians 13. The love chapter, right? Love is patient, love is kind. We love 1 Corinthians 13. Raise your hand. If 1 Corinthians 13 was read at your wedding, okay, yeah, my wife's hand is up, my hand is up, it was read at our wedding. Because we think 1 Corinthians 13 is all about romantic love. Love is patient and kind. It's all this nice, warm, fuzzy, romantic language. Uh, And the unfortunate reality is it's not lovey-dovey. 1 Corinthians 13 is not about romantic love at all. How do I know that? Because 1 Corinthians 13 comes after 1 Corinthians 12 and before 1 Corinthians 14. The context determines what it means. 1 Corinthians 12 is all about spiritual gifts and the madness going on in Corinth around them. 1 Corinthians 14 is all about spiritual gifts and the madness going on in Corinth around them. Do you normally break into romantic poetry when you're talking about speaking in tongues and healing? Is it just... just Paul doesn't either. The context shows us what it means. So the chapter isn't about romantic love. It's about loving each other in the church, about not dominating one another, with, not, not playing who's the holiest and who is the coolest gift. That's what the church is called to. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. And the context shows us that. So I have a famous anonymous quote here for you. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Well, what does that mean? Uh, Yeah, in other words, you can't just snag a verse out of thin air and ignore everything around it because then you're just trying to say what you want to say anyway and you don't actually care what the Bible says. So, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. We need to know the Bible is a book, but we also need to know it is more than that. The Bible is also the word of God. And that means these four things. So first, the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. If God indeed has breathed his word into existence and it reflects his character and it communicates his will, we must submit to whatever it says. We don't get the option like we do with other books to say, I like this, I don't like that, pick and choose what I want. You can't just take it or leave it. You must submit to it. So my wife and I recently, I guess a couple months ago, uh, had lunch with a young couple in our church. I won't say who, I don't want to, some people don't like the spotlight. Um, we had lunch with a young couple and uh, the young woman was, was uh, struggling with Ephesians 5.22, which says, wives submit to your husbands. And her question was not, how can the Bible say that? Her question was, how do I do that? And it, I was just tremendously encouraged 
Because that's exactly the posture we should all have to God's word. Not, man, the Bible, ugh, I don't like this part, but how, how can I live that out? How can I obey? Because I know God's word is good, I know it's true, and I want to submit to God. So that should be our question. Even when we don't like what it says, we need to strive to obey. It is authoritative, and we need to see and trust that it's good. Second, the Bible is true. So, in fact, as the Reformers said, it's not just true. I won't give you some fancy Latin term that the Reformers use for this, but the Bible is the very standard by which all truths are measured. It is the plumb line, the measure, the ruler of all truth. So, obviously, internally, if we think there's an error in the Bible, the fault is ours, not the Bible's. God isn't a schizophrenic, right? He, he doesn't say something here and that means that and then contradict himself over here. No, God is consistent and his word is perfect and inerrant. It does not make mistakes. So his word is inerrant, but our interpretations of it are not. We can make mistakes when we read it. And so if we feel like there's a contradiction, we may be misinterpreting a passage here or a passage there. The Bible is inerrant, but our interpretations are not and there's an important principle with that to help you read your Bible. Read the Bible with biblical presuppositions. Read the Bible with biblical presuppositions. I realize there's something inherently circular about that, but the point is there are truths you should consider sufficiently settled when you read Scripture. There, so uh, there's this uh, thing uh, called theological interpretation of Scripture uh, I won't, I could give you a whole book. I could give you like three or four whole books on it. It's very interesting. Actually, if you're interested in theological interpretation of scripture, look up uh, the Gospel Coalition. They have an essay on it. It's a theological kind of essay on what that is. It's very helpful. But here's the point. Last week in uh, tech here, someone asked the question in our Q&A, uh, what, uh, what do they say? Something, is there a lens with which we should read the Bible so we don't make the same mistakes the Mormons do, for example? And the answer is yes. There is a lens you should have when you read the Bible. And the lens, so you shouldn't just come like to the Bible like, I know nothing and the Bible's telling me things. You know things the Bible says clearly, even if it's not in the passage you're reading right there. So the Bible says very clearly, Jesus is the son of God, that he is the only way to be saved, that God is triune. So there's, there's these big central truths you should be reading with, in, in, with, in, have in mind when you're reading the Bible and don't expect the Bible to contradict it because it won't. There are these, these settled truths, there, there are these clear borders that are in place, these biblical presuppositions you should have while reading the Bible. Part of that is because the church has been wrestling with some of these questions for 2,000 years and we've actually found the language that is very, we, we've been sharpened through time. We found the language that's helpful to describe things like the word Trinity. It's not in the Bible, but we use it to describe this biblical reality that the Bible very clearly testifies to. And the Mormons deny the Trinity because they are dumb. Okay. Um, another way to say that is uh, let scripture interpret scripture, right? So if you find a passage difficult to understand, bring another passage alongside it that might help you see what it's saying. Third here, I'll try to pick up the pace a little bit. I want to do our case study. So uh, the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. We're not missing anything we need. When you read the Bible, you should know it has everything that you need for life, for godliness, to know how to be saved. The Bible, God's not holding anything back. 
You don't need to go read the tea leaves or do something else to, because to, there's, there's this little piece you're, you're missing that God didn't quite give you. No, everything you need is in the Bible. It is sufficient. But we do need to remember what it's sufficient for. So if you are trying to fix your car, the Bible will help you do that in a godly way, but it won't help you know how to replace your alternator. That's a thing, right, Carl? Alternators? Yep. Thanks, Carl. Uh, like the Bible doesn't give you instructions on these things because it's not sufficient in the sense that it literally tells you everything that you could ever possibly know. It is sufficient in what it promises to be sufficient for. If you want to know how to be saved, to live a life of obedience, the Bible has what you need. Fourth here, the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear. Even if it takes work, you can know what it is saying. You could just put it very simply. God communicates when he communicates. God communicates when he communicates. He, he's not saying things in some foreign, unknowable way. He speaks through his word. Which leads me to our next section. Just a couple common mistakes I want us to be aware of. So first mistake uh, that you may have run into or may experience in your own life is despair. I can't understand what it means. It's too hard. I'm not smart enough. The Bible is just, I can't get there. I did say there should, you should feel this foreignness. That's true. You should feel that some of the distance, especially parts of the Bible that are written, you know, 3,000 plus years ago. But it is still the case that God has not only spoken so that pastors can understand. It's still the case that God has not only spoken so that you know, the Pope or the Roman Catholic magisterium can understand that they are the authoritative interpreters and you have to just sit down, shut up and listen. No, God has spoken so that you, Christian, can understand the very spirit which inspired, hear the word spirit in there, which inspired God's word. If your faith is in Christ, that same spirit lives in you. So you can understand. You don't, have to, you don't have to despair. Another mistake, subjectivism. Uh, this is the mistake where you are the one who creates meaning with what the Bible gives you. So someone says, this is what it means to me. It feels like this is what it says for, for me. And there is a sense in which, yeah, maybe your own personal application, the implications for your own life could be what you're saying, but it is not the case that the Bible can't just mean anything. It doesn't just mean whatever you feel like it, you want it to mean. So verses like God is love are just torn out of the scriptures today. And people say, here's what I think it means when it says God is love. It means, you know, tolerance for whatever kind of lifestyle, right? No, that's, that's, not, that's not what that means. God is very clear that, that it can't mean that, actually, if you read the Bible. So it's, avoid this subjectivism. You're, you're, you're unearthing what is in the Bible. You're not implanting it. Uh, last mistake I have here, soapboxing. Soapboxing. What I mean by that is just majoring on something minor. Uh, this, <laughs> this happens all the time in group Bible studies, at least in my experience, uh, is, is everyone, not everyone, sometimes someone has a hobby horse and they somehow find a way to talk about it every single time. Right? Like, like I am really excited about this truth, which may be a biblical truth, but not every passage in the Bible is literally about the one thing you are currently interested in. So be careful, right? Don't just hop on a soapbox and major on 
the minors. I used to have a pastor who would say that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. That's really important. We should, we should honor uh, the, the, Bibli- the Bible's emphases. We should emphasize the things the Bible emphasizes. And if the Bible is silent on things, we should probably be silent too. We don't, shouldn't go out of our way and try to make the Bible say things in places that it doesn't. Uh, in seminary classes, my, or one of my preaching professors would say, you know, uh, it's, it's the right truth, it's the wrong text. Right? And so we need to get the right truth from the right text. We need to know what the Bible is saying and not just what we are excited to talk about. Okay, that was a lot of foundation laying. I think we actually do have some good time for our, uh, our practice here together. So here's what we're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna do some Bible study together now in the room. Uh, so I'm gonna kind of walk you through the method I think will be most helpful for you. Group leaders, this will all be very familiar. Group leaders have been through this training at least once. Um, but uh, we're, I'm gonna explain the step and then we're gonna talk about it and you're gonna help us figure out what we're doing. So the text we're gonna go through is the very back of your notes. I put it in nice 14 size font for you. First Peter chapter four. So uh, the method, so again, I'll explain each piece of the method and then it will do that individual piece. So it'll be kind of me talking and then some back and forth. So uh, Roy Map. again, group leaders will be familiar. Some groups group will be, some, if you're just in a group, you might be familiar with this. Roy Map. read, observe, interpret, meditate, apply, pray. Uh, quick caveat before we dive into this. This is how you study the Bible. And study, studying is for depth. Breadth is important too. So I don't, I don't really go through these steps when, in my morning Bible reading. I'm going for breadth there typically. Sometimes I'll kind of do something different. I'll do a more deep dive on one book or something like that. Um, and this would be closer to applying. But this is much closer to my sermon prep kind of method than my, uh, my own personal Bible reading. There's breadth and there's depth. Both are important. This is about depth. So first, the first step, very simple. Read. Get your eyes on the Bible. Read it. There's no better way to start. The Bible is a book. We've established that, right? What do you do with a book? You read it. So read it. Don't add up the numbers, you know, the letters on a page and come up with something about the JFK assassination. No, that's not what you do with a book. You read a book. So I will go ahead, and this is just the quickest step of our work together. 1 Peter chapter 4, let me read it. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Step one, check, we did it. Great job, everyone. Next, Observe, read, and then observe. So observation is about seeing what is in the text. The, the image I've used with our group leaders when I've done this training is uh, it's like you're collecting puzzle pieces. 
You're, just, you're not really worrying about what the image is on the box. You're just, what are all the pieces that we have in front of us? You're just collecting the puzzle pieces, seeing what you're working with. And, and part of that means you should probably start, not probably, you should start by identifying the genre and the context. So I've, I've listed a couple different kinds of, of genre, and con- or sorry, different kinds of context there for you. Uh, there's the literary context about where you are in the individual book. What was the previous passage about? The canonical context is where you are in the Bible. Are we in the wilderness wanderings? Are we in Acts? Has, are we after Acts and has the church has been really born? The, you know, the different stages of redemptive history. And then there's the historical context, thirdly. So is Assyria about to invade Israel? That might be important. That might be what Isaiah is talking about if Assyria is about to come through town. Some of that, obviously, um, is going to use, it helps to have some technical knowledge, particularly with historical context. Uh, the Bible gives you what you need in order to understand it, but there are sometimes outside tools that can help and that can aid. Uh, and something like a good study Bible can give you a lot, of, a lot of those kind of things. The ESV study Bible, I think, is great. So that could also help with that. But then the main work of observation involves uh, these questions that I have listed for you here. You just look at the text and you see what's, what's in it. What are we working with? So are there repeated words or themes? This is something I do almost every time I'm writing a sermon. I'm, I'm, I'm translating the text, I'm working through it, and I, if I see one word pop up again and again, I start highlighting it. Okay, that word is important. It might actually be what this whole passage is about. And so pay attention. Repeated words, repeated themes will help you understand what we're talking about. Uh, other questions I have there for you, what, what surprises you? What's the structure? What details seem important? There's a lot of, a lot of kind of, those are just there for you to, to have and to think through as you, as you study on your own. A key part of observation is you are not interpreting. You're not interpreting yet. We'll get there. That's the next step. But you're just, again, gathering the puzzle pieces. Don't, don't worry about what's on the box. Part of the, the whole Roy map process, read, observe, interpret, meditate, apply, pray, is to keep you from doing things too early. Because if you just start, re- start reading, okay, application, here it is. Remember, the Bible is written for you, not to you. And if you act like it was written to you, you'll make mistakes. So the whole process is meant to slow you down, keep you from jumping ahead, which is how you make mistakes. So look at 1 Peter 4. Let's make some, some observations. I'll, I'll just, I'll kind of lead here. We'll skip context and genre. Because uh, I'll just tell you, Peter is writing a letter to a group of Christians who are experiencing persecution, uh, and he's been telling them how to live as both those who are exiles in the world and also loved by God. There's your context, the genre, it's a letter. Okay, I'm looking for some feedback now. What are, are there any repeated words or themes that give us a clue to what this passage might be about? Brett? Suffering. I could barely hear you, Brett. So everyone, you're going to need to speak up. Remember, I am partially deaf. What else? What other main repeated words do we see? Suffering is definitely one of the biggest ones. Rejoice. Rejoice. Yeah, joy, glory shows up a couple times for sure. The glory of God. Yes. That's there at the end. Uh, Well, yeah, entrusting yourself to God, but I wrote down where those were. Yeah, verse 13, verse 14, verse 16, all talk about glory or glorifying. Anything else? Those seem to be the main ones. So we know this passage is about suffering. It's about joy. It's about the glory of God. 
Okay, we're just collecting puzzle pieces. Is there anything in here that, that surprises you? Anything that, that stands out? Expectation of suffering. Yeah, he just says, don't be surprised. For sure. Rejoice. Yeah, we're talking about suffering. How, I mean, it's even Brad being like, suffering's what this is about, and Brad's like, joy is what this is about. Whoa, how could it be about both? That's a great one. Anything else? Anything else stick out as surprising? Yeah, that's interesting. One that I noted, you guys all said things that I noted. Uh, Suffer according to God's will, verse 19. That's shocking. I can suffer according to God's will. That's surprising. We don't have time to to belabor everything. I do want to get some time for Q&A when we're done, but... Uh, I'll just make one observation here about the structure. One thing you'll notice if you, if you spend a little time in this passage, there's these contrasts, right? Don't be surprised, rejoice. So don't do this, but do this, right? Don't suffer for evil, suffer as a Christian. So it's don't do this, do this, right? We see these contrasts throughout. So it's maybe like, this is what he's expecting them to do. And this is what they need to do, right? So that, that helps us. That's, that's observation. Good job, everyone. Next, interpretation. Interpretation is where we identify the text message to its original audience. So now we're taking the puzzle pieces we've collected and we're trying to figure out what picture they make. So what is the passage saying? What, what's the main point? What, what are some subpoints that it makes? Uh, important part of this, remember, we're still talking about the original audience. So we're not doing application yet. We're not kind of taking a universal principle out of it. So try to use language like this is Peter's audience needs to blank. This is what Peter is saying to them. Because we need to know what it it says to them first before we can even consider how it might apply to us. So uh, some questions I have there. Yeah, what's the author's main point? Uh, If you were to interview a member of the original audience, what would they say this passage is about? So let's do this with 1 Peter 4. What are some things you see Peter saying to his original audience? What are some takeaways they need to have? What would you say? Endure. Endure, yes. Endure. You're suffering, you need to endure it. Yes. God's in control, absolutely. Sorry, Rob. Expect to suffer. Peter is saying to these first century Christians, expect to suffer. Don't be surprised. Anything else? How should they respond to suffering? With gladness. Yeah, be glad when you suffer for God's will, right? That's important, right? Because he talks about don't suffer as a murderer or a thief. If you're suffering because you killed someone, don't be like, oh, God is just sanctifying me. No. I mean, he is. He's always doing that if you're a Christian. But I mean, don't be like, this is God's will. You killed someone, right? Like that's your fault. Anything else? What's Peter's audience supposed to do? 
We've said a lot of the ones I had. Any other thoughts? Did anyone notice verse 13? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So they're, they're following their Savior in their suffering. They're saying, hey, say, actually the suffering you're experiencing for, uh, for being righteous, for walking with God, is the same suffering Christ went through. And you're, you're sharing in the suffering of your Savior. You're following him. So at this point, this would be too difficult to do with a room this big, but what you usually want to do now at the end of interpretation is, is summarize the passage in a, maybe a sentence or two. What, what kind of, how can we wrap it up all together in one sentence? So this is, this is what I have. It, I don't think it's perfect, but it, it hopefully gets us, it helps. Godly suffering is a normal, purposeful, and Christ-like reality for Peter's audience. Godly suffering is a normal, purposeful, and Christ-like reality for Peter's audience. Notice I'm still saying Peter's audience. I'm not talking about us. I think, fortunately, because this is closer to where we are in a redemptive history than, you know, the Leviticus or something like that. So we can usually get pretty close right away to saying what it means for us. Um, I mean, even that, that right there, that could be a sermon outline if I'm preaching this. Okay, it's a normal reality, it's a purposeful reality, and it's a Christ-like reality. We see all those things in this passage, right? So that's interpretation. Next, meditate. I won't, I won't spend too long on this. Primarily because Jared, in I think two weeks, three weeks, is going to spend an entire tech talking about meditating on the scriptures. So, I mean, it can only be so helpful. Um, but the basic idea here is that meditation is about filling your mind with the big truths of the passage. It's, it's a little bit theological, but it's not just so you can win theology trivia. It is, it is molding your mind around the world the text reveals to you so you can live in it. That's part of what meditation is these big truths that it's communicating. And that's also part of where you're kind of universalizing the, the summary statement that you've come up with. So again, I won't say any more and we'll, we'll skip that right now for First Peter because Jared will, will spend more time on that. Um, but let's, let's get to the, the final step, or sorry, the second to last step, application. So you've done the previous work, all right? The Bible is written for you, but not to you. Now you not can, you must bring it home. It's written for you. You need to consider what it says to your life. So how should you respond to the message that God communicates through this text? Now, I have uh, listed there for you a couple ways to think through uh, application, a couple ideas to consider. Um, and it just so happens that top half there uh, spells out space pets. If you want to write an angry email, I deserve it. I'm sorry. But if that's helpful for you to remember, how, uh, possible ways to apply a text, space pets. Uh, or if you're like Jared and it needs to alliterate or you're a true Baptist, it all starts with the same letter. What delight should be in my heart? What doctrine should I believe? What deeds should I do? Uh, those, are just, those are just suggestions to consider. Not every text will hit all of these. Uh, some texts might hit applications I don't have listed here for you. Um, these are just ideas to help you get started. Um, one thing I want to say before we apply First Peter, focus on yourself in application. It, it is unbelievably easy to read the Bible and be like, man, this politician, my crazy uncle, you know, that my spouse, they really need this truth. They need, they need to apply. Let me, let me think through it for them. No, 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 no. You have to start with yourself. If you don't start with yourself, you're doing it 
wrong. You should be challenged by what you've read. So, 1 Peter chapter 4. You can, I mean, if you want to, you can use this list of the space pets and the, the delight doctrine deeds thing I have there for you. What are some ways we can apply 1 Peter 4 to ourselves? Sorry, I didn't hear that. Example to follow. Like what, what example? Christ. Exactly. Follow Christ's example by suffering faithfully. Yeah. What else? Which is what? Yeah. As a result of your own sin. Don't suffer as a result of your own sin. Yeah. And don't think that just because you're suffering that it's, you know, maybe don't start with, it's not my fault. It could be your fault. Look at your life. Is it my own sin that's brought this suffering? Because it's an error to say, no matter what, you know, God's bringing this suffering in my life and, you know, I killed someone, but, you know, I'm being righteous, trying to suffer. No, that's your fault. What else? What other applications could we consider from this passage? Yeah, that's really good. That's re- I didn't have that one. That's really good, yeah. Don't be envious of the world. Look at 18. So it says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become the, of the ungodly and the sinner? So you maybe look at, sorry, I'm gonna start preaching your point there, Brad. But uh, maybe you look at the world and you say, man, they seem like they've got it good. They're not suffering like I'm suffering. They're being accepted. And God's saying, look at their end. Don't, don't be envious of them. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what do you think is going to happen to the ungodly and the sinner? So don't be jealous of the world. That's a great point. What else? Delight. Delight. Yeah. 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 Say, praise God for this suffering. If I'm, I'm suffering like my Savior, that, what a privilege to get to share in that. Absolutely. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. It's all over this passage. That, so, so yeah, this is the point where you kind of go back. This is a great job, Rob. Go back and remember, what are the words we talked about? Glorify, rejoice, suffering. How, what, how are those speaking to my life? How, what do I need to know about those things? That's certainly part of it. Anything else? Any other applications? I'll just do this for one more minute. One thing, I, I, we hit all the ones that I had down, but something to praise God for, he brings blessing through the suffering he brings into our lives. He's actually blessing you through your suffering if you're suffering for righteousness sake. That's amazing. Praise God for his wisdom and his ability to do that. That's amazing. All right, finally, this will be very brief. I will say almost nothing about the last step, pray. Read, observe, interpret, meditate, apply, pray. I will say almost nothing because again, Jared is teaching a tech on right here on praying the Bible in like what, six weeks, something like that. I looked it up. Um, so stay tuned for that. The idea though is simple. The Bible is the word of God. It is his speech. So your prayer after reading the Bible is the second half of a conversation. It's not just divorced. Okay, God, you said something. Now let me talk about something else. Respond to the God who has spoken 
in his word and consider what he said and respond according to to it. All right, let me pray now. And then we have a few minutes for Q&A. God, you are gracious and kind and amazing to speak to us through your word. What a privilege, God, that we can sit down, we can open up our Bibles and we can hear the voice of the king of the universe who has loved us, called us, and made us his own in Christ. Help us, Father, to be moved to study your word and help us to study it well, faithfully, wisely, and help us to obey. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.